to the Misophonia Podcast. This is Season 6, Episode 32. My name is Adil Ahmad, and I have Misophonia. This week I have Part 1 of a conversation I had with Cresta, a licensed therapist based in Southern California. Cresta is also a misophone, or was a misophone. She says she's now free with, from misophonia, and this extensive conversation describes her journey and many topics like trauma, uh, internal family systems, going sober, a modality she uses called brain spotting, which was key to her journey, and many other fascinating topics. In this first part, we'll get a bit into her background. We'll talk all about the nervous system, internal family systems, and learn a little bit about brain spotting. And in the next episode, we'll get deeper into her personal journey and the process that got her to not feel fight or flight anymore in the presence of triggers. After the show, as always, let me know what you think. Uh, you can reach out by email at hello at misophoniapodcast.com or join the conversation on Instagram or Facebook at Misophonia Podcast. I want to highlight a couple projects I've been working on recently. One is MisoGPT, which is basically an AI chatbot that is trained on every episode of the Misophonia Podcast and lets you ask questions about anything that's come up on the show. No data gets stored permanently anywhere else, and nothing you ask, uh, nothing you ask gets used to train AIs. But I plan to develop this more and more over time to get better at not only answering questions from all the experiences that have been on the show, but also coming up with new insights on its own to help you. I also want to point out a new mobile app I developed for iOS and Android called Basil. This is a journaling app for writing your thoughts and experiences. And the difference with this one is that AI is used to summarize your thoughts from the perspective of a therapist and also help prompt you based on your recent experiences. It doesn't try to provide any therapy, but it's just meant to really help guide your journaling and give new insights into what you're going through. Okay, enough talk about AI. I really want to thank also our uh, incredible Patreon supporters. If you feel like contributing, you can read all about the various levels at patreon.com slash misophonia podcast. All right, let's get to this conversation. Part one with Cresta. Okay, well, uh, Cresta, welcome to the podcast. Good to have you here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yes, I've been looking forward to this too. So um, yeah, well, why don't we st start with the standard questions, kind of like, um, where are you from? What do you do? So I am in Southern California, a little suburb of Los Angeles. Um, I am a licensed marriage and family therapist. Um, I, I specialize in trauma. I'm actually a certified complex trauma practitioner level two officially. Mm -hmm. um, and my main modalities are um, internal family systems and brain spotting. Um, and then also I think the audience should know I suffered with misophonia for 35 years. Um, and it's kind of been a mission of mine starting in graduate school to find a solution. And here I am sharing not only um, what I've learned as a trauma therapist, but also how those two modalities of internal family systems and brain spotting help me find freedom from misophonia because I consider myself free from it now. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Great summary. And for the audience, uh, uh, when Cresta reached out, we did have a conversation, and uh, but I'm going to try to pretend like I didn't, <laughs> and try to come in, come in kind of fresh because um, yeah, it's all fascinating stuff, and I think it's very important for people to hear. Um, I guess yeah. It, do you want to talk a little bit about? Um, uh, oh gosh, I don't. I should have thought of when we start. Maybe, maybe let's talk about a little, just briefly, like your background with, with, when you you know when you had more trigger when you had triggers uh, with misophonia, mm -hmm. kind of like. Just briefly, what was going on and then um, how you uh, landed with kind of the, the, your first aha moment? Yeah, so um, it's interesting. A little bit more of my background. So I also um, I'm 23 years sober in AA mm -hmm. and um, I also worked with eating disorders as part of my journey. And I see a lot of some there's some similarities, I think, between addiction, eating disorders, and this experience, this phenomena of misophonia. Um, but just to, as in AA, we would say to qualify. <laughs> um, so I first remember um, noticing triggers at about 12. 
Um, it seemed like it happened kind of overnight. Like one moment I'm fine eating dinner with the family and the next I just, my uh, parents both had chewing noises that really triggered me and I didn't really understand what was going on. But I remember trying to devour my food as quickly as I could so I could get out of, of the dinner table. And sometimes it didn't work. I had to there, there were times where it was so painful where I had to take my plate to the kitchen to get away from the noises and I would just cry because it was so horrible. Mm -hmm. um, and at that point, I didn't know about misophonia. I just thought I was crazy. Um, why am I responding this way? Why am I feeling this way? And um, it wasn't until 2006, I think, when I heard a radio interview with Marsha Johnson on a a uh, great TV show actually about food called Good Food. It's on KCRW. Um, and Marsha was being interviewed about misophonia or 4S syndrome, right? Select sound sensitivity syndrome. Right. Um, and I just really, I was like, oh, that's me. That's, that's what I have. And um, I joined at that time a Yahoo group, right? Where people were trying to figure this out and find commonalities to try to find a solution. And I was really heartened by this community that was showing up around it. So three, 3,000, I think it, at the end, there was like 6,000 or more worldwide. So I know I wasn't alone. Um, but it seems like, at least until recently, there's just not really been a good answer. <laughs> it's been mostly uh, therapies that have been, oh, you got to cope with it. You got to live with it. Um, but that was really painful. I mean, my misophonia definitely got worse over time. Eventually, I developed um, the misokinesia, mm -hmm. and um, it affected my my work life. I actually worked in the film industry for 20 years, and depending on the setup, I could either get away from triggers or I was forced to be around them, and it was torture. Um, a lot of people in the film industry don't take lunch breaks. They'll eat their lunch at their desk. And so I, one job in particular, we had five people in a tiny little office. <laughs> Everyone would eat their food at their desk and it made it impossible for me to concentrate. Um, yeah. and then when I met my husband, I was very upfront about misophonia, what that meant and what that could mean for us as a couple. Um, and he was great as far as like going into a restaurant, which usually sound wise is very safe, right? Because there's a lot of noise. It blocks out the sound triggers, but visually <laughs> it's made it really hard. And he all, he learned very quickly to just let me pick the table and which, you know, where to sit so that I could see the fewest people eating as possible. Right. Um, every once in a while, I'd have to like prop up a menu <laughs> to block out something. Um, you know, it just made, you know, going to movies was just not possible. Um, it was just too painful because inevitably someone would plop down next to me eating popcorn, um, usually right before the movie started. Um, and so it was just my world started to get very small. Um, it was not fun. Right, right. Okay, okay. And, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot of um, <laughs> common experiences of thing that many of us can, uh, many of us can share. So you, you were, but you were determined to, uh, um, obviously, like you said earlier, solve this. Uh, mm -hmm. um, yeah, maybe let's let's kind of cut to closer to kind of like um, what led you to IFS and and brain spotting. Brain spotting is something I'd never even heard of uh, before. Mm -hmm. I first talked to Cresta. Yeah, so I'd love to hear kind of like how you got to that that moment. Or I mean, it's probably a period of time. <laughs> yeah, it's been a long journey for sure. Um, so I'll, additionally, I just add, so my sister, this is kind of a funny story. My sister, who's three years younger than me, younger than me, I can talk English, um, mm -hmm. also has misophonia. And her daughter, my niece, also has misophonia. Um, but I didn't know that my sister had misophonia until about five years ago. So gotcha. I had... I had no idea we had this shared experience, um, but I just find that as an interesting little little side note. But what got me into IFS was I went to, so being a therapist um, is a second career for me. I went back to school and um, decided I would be, you know, a therapist. I wanted to help people. Uh, and 
took the opportunity to do all the research I could on misophonia. I did an independent study, so I, I had access to all the the um, research, which at that time I think there was maybe 30 articles. <laughs> but the uh, the Kumar study with the MRI scans had come out at that time. Um, I was taking classes in you know neuroscience and and all this stuff and trying to figure out my way in this world of therapy and you know you go to graduate school and you learn a lot of different modalities cbt dbt uh, psychodynamic all that stuff there's literally over 400 different kinds of modalities so right um and there's a lot of crossover right there's a lot of similarities um but what really stuck out to me was um it was a family family systems class and there was one chapter on internal family systems that I read and something about it just really resonated with me. There was a spiritual component to it that I recognized and immediately felt connected to that I had come to appreciate from being sober. And something about it just, it was so compassionate and so non-pathologizing. There was so much hope in this modality, um, I just was completely intrigued. So I took a d deep dive, got a bunch of books. Uh, there's some online trainings and um, started using it when I started seeing clients and had amazing results. It was really, it was working. Mm -hmm. um, so I followed that path. Um, part of my schooling was I was required to have my own therapy, which I think. <laughs> yeah, that's important, I think. Yeah. Yes. I really think every therapist should have their own therapy. It's our, you know, it's so important for our clients and for our own self-care. Um, but this therapist kind of stumbled across her, but she also did parts work. So internal family systems is also referred to as parts work. And right. she's brain spotting, which is not a modality I'd heard of in school. In school, I learned about EMDR, um, some other sort of trauma modalities, but brain spotting was completely new. And when she described it to me, I thought it was completely nuts. Um, but then she gave me a demonstration and I experienced it. And I was like, oh, okay, this is, something's here, something's going on here. Um, and knowing what I had learned about misophonia, about, you know, it's it's in our, a part of our brain, our midbrain, which is responsible for our survival instincts. Um, and brain spotting allows us to kind of bypass our thinking brain and get into those deeper parts of the brain. So once I learned kind of what it was doing, I had a lot of hope for it, for helping misophonia, so. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Do you want to, uh, yeah, I guess do you want to describe more, well, maybe, um, either of those IFS or, um, brain spotting, let's start with one of them. Do you want to maybe just maybe describe brain spotting? Cause that might be the most, uh, new to people. Um, what, yeah. what does that therapy look like? Uh, and, uh, and you know, we should probably talk about, um, uh, you know, that the, 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 I'm sure it'll come up the difference between the, uh, that thinking cognitive brain and that more, uh, limbic system, um, and kind of how, how these relate to that. Yes, this is so important. So, um, it's kind of like how, where to, to begin. Um, I think yeah. we actually need to start with trauma. Would that be okay? Yeah, let's let's do that. Yeah, yeah, because that's that's yeah. kind of the root of what what these things are trying to trying to um, heal. Yeah, exactly. So if we can lay the foundation for trauma, understanding what trauma is, what it isn't, and the mechanisms in the mm -hmm. body and in the brain, um, I think that could help. You know, and then we can see how IFS and brain spotting can address these issues and how they help. Um, yes. So. Talk about trauma, and if I can maybe uh, just a, a little warning for your listeners, like in talking about trauma, um, we're not going to be going into any radical detail, but it could be triggering. Um, so if you do find yourself uh, getting activated, please pause the recording, take care of yourself. And if it's okay, I'd actually like to offer a resource um, for people who, you know, um, mental health care is really hard to find, um, especially quality 
um, mental health care. So there's a resource, there's a um, Open Path Collective. It's a low cost um, therapy. They have therapists registered and they across the United States. Um, and you can go online, you can search by modality, um, search by state, and their sliding scale starts at 20 and I think goes up to like $70 a session. So it's really affordable. So I mm. uh, wanted to share that resource with folks. But um, so trauma, <laughs> most of the time when we think about trauma, we're thinking about sort of really horrific events, um, whether, you know, sort of one time things like a car crash or, um, you know, national na natural disaster, those can be trauma. Also think about, you know, abuse, um, physical or, or emotional or, or sexual. Um, and, but we think of it as, you know, a lot of definitions go by, well, trauma is when you experience something where your life is in danger and your ability to cope is overwhelmed. And I would like to kind of flip that and use what Gabor Mate, how Gabor Mate defines trauma, which I love, which is, you know, he'll say that trauma is not the event. So we often think about trauma as the event that we mm -hmm. experienced, but it's the event itself is not the trauma. It can be traumatic. So being in a car crash can be traumatic. Being abused can be traumatic. But the trauma is what happens on the inside. It's what happens to us on the inside. Um, I work primarily with sexual abuse survivors and complex trauma. And over, over again, I hear, you know, when we go to their parts, which we'll talk about what that looks like, um, the parts that are needing help and how what they need is not often, they, they're not looking to relive the experience. They're holding burdens around, this happened to me, but the trauma was I was all alone. Um, I lost a parent and that was sad, but what was traumatic was that no one talked to me about it. No one explained what was going on. I didn't understand. I had no safe place to process what was coming up for me. That's the trauma. Um, and so our parts, take on this belief of um, various beliefs. A, a common one is um, I have to figure this out on my own. You know, mm -hmm. I'm all alone or I'm misunderstood or no one cares for me. Um, so that's how I like to look at trauma. I think it's really important. It's not the event, it's what happens inside us. So some people can experience a traumatic event, but if they have someone to talk to about it, if they have a way to process that, if they have someone that can listen to them, usually the trauma isn't gonna stay inside of them, right? Mm -hmm. um, they can recover. Um, but if that doesn't happen, then it's almost like it, that trauma stays inside of us. And the, the clients I see have usually had multiple, multiple instances of having to keep that trauma, what I call trauma energy inside their bodies um, and over time, it builds up, it accumulates, and it, it can become toxic. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's a great, uh, that's a great, yeah, it's a great explanation. And yeah, it's not just the, uh, the sensationalist idea or the TV idea of, of you know, that, you know, the, the classic, like, it's got to be this intense thing. It's, it's actually more about your reaction to it. And so it could be different for different people. And, uh, yeah. Um, and yeah, some, some people are you know, happen to have, are able to process it in the moment and then the energy is released. But for others, it, it kind of like um, gnaws and stays in the body. So at least that's my layman <laughs> interpretation or summary, <laughs> but, but reflection of what you just said. So Yeah. And Bessel van der Kolk, you know, his, his book, mm -hmm. um, Body Keeps the Score, is all about that. Um, right. That book has been a bestseller for I don't know how long, but people really resonate with it still. It's a really important book. Um, yeah, so to that effect, you know, and we can maybe talk about a little bit later, because I know this was one of my struggles when I was trying to find a solution for misophonia is that, you know, we have this body response of fight or flight, right. which I'm, I can talk about in just a minute, what that is exactly, um, which I've come to know, know as a trauma therapist is that as a trauma response. Um, but a lot of people aren't connecting to any sort of trauma history. So what's going on there? 
you know, it doesn't quite make sense. Um, but we can maybe open that up a little bit later. So the the nervous system activation, I think, is a really key component, especially when it comes to misophonia, because um, if we're not getting triggered, a lot of time our nervous system is activated just, you know, trying to protect ourselves, <laughs> hypervigilance mm-hmm. from hearing or feeling a, a trigger sound. Um, so what's going on with the nervous system? So a lot of people are familiar with the, the survival responses, fight, flight, freeze, flop, fawn. Um, so if you think of the nervous system activation, ideally we would be inside what, what we call the window of tolerance. So in my work with eating disorders, just my work with addiction, we're always looking to expand someone's window of tolerance. Usually the reason why they've turned to a substance or to an eating disorder is because their window of tolerance is really small. So if you think of it as a scale of zero to 10, zero being on the bottom and 10 being at the top, Ideally, we'd want to be right around five, right? Four to four to four, five, six would be a, a good window of tolerance. And as we go through our day, of course, we're going to be going kind of up and down and in and around. But, you know, we'll get we might wake up kind of tired. And so we're more at a four and then we have our coffee and it goes up to a six. And, yeah. Um, you know, maybe we're driving through traffic and we feel a little more elevated up to a six again and back down when we're in a safe place again. Um, so when we start getting on either end of the spectrum, whether it's closer to 10 or closer to zero, that is, those are both dysregulated states. So at the top, you know, if we go up the scale, there'll be frustration, then anxiety, then anger, and then 10 is like rage, right? So people even say, I went into a blackout rage. Um, that's, That's a 10. But on the other end of the spectrum, we have feeling low, depression, sad, numb, and then a zero would be um, uh, dissociated, right? It's almost like a blackout state, but it's the other end of the spectrum. So, and a lot of people don't think about, um, you know, being depressed or dissociating as being dysregulated, but that's exactly what it is. It's dysregulated. Um, So the fight, flight, freeze, flop, fawn responses are not trauma responses. They are survival instincts to get us out of dangerous situations. So if we're feeling fight, flight, freeze, flop, fawn, any of those strategies to get us out of a dangerous situation, that's a good thing, right? That's where our thinking brain goes off in life-threatening situations. Um, and those, those responses happen automatically. We do not have control over them. Um, what we call it, what, when it turns into a trauma response is when we are having those responses of a fight, flight, freeze, flop, or fawn when our life isn't actually in danger, right? So it's it's not serving the purpose of saving our life. Um, you know, someone eating carrots <laughs> across the way from me, it's not life-threatening, So, but I have this urge to punch them in the face or run away, that's, that's, a tr- that's trouble, right? That's not functional. So that's why I categorize um, this specific misophonia phenomenon of fight or flight as a trauma response. because It just doesn't match up to, you know, real life experience. Our life is not in danger because they're eating an apple in front of us. Right, right. Yeah. Hey, could you describe the... Um Fight flight, oh, you know, fight flight and fawn. Yeah. Um, well, m- some people might not know fawn. I actually had not heard of flop. Um, mm-hmm. And so, because I think this it's the fight, fight, uh, f- uh, fight, flight, or fawn are in the Vanderkl in uh, Body Keeps Score. I, maybe flop is too. I maybe didn't get to that yet. But uh, uh, yeah, could you just describe those, those four a little bit? Because people yeah. might relate to that as part of their misophonia responses. Yeah. So, I mean, fight is, you know, we're going to fight either with our fists or with yeah. our words. Flight is I need to run away. That's what most um, people want to do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which, <laughs> and flight can also happen um, uh, with like an out-of-body experience. So if I can't physically get away, um, my brain will yeah. go away. So that, right. that's dissociation. That's that's. I, I work with a lot of people who 
have learned to do that to survive what they've experienced. Um, freeze is when you kind of don't know what to do. And if you think about um, sort of animals that, that freeze, the, the, the sort of logic behind freeze is that if I don't move, then maybe yeah. you won't notice me, you won't harm me. So there's freeze response. Flop is when it's almost like playing dead. If I just play dead, then you won't you won't hurt me, um, or you'll take it easier on me. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, yeah, and flop That's actually. That's the distinction. Yeah. Yeah, when you flop, the body actually fills you with um, I forget the name of the chemical, but it's a numbing chemical mm -hmm. that actually prepares you to take um, pain, but numbs you to it, so you don't feel it as much. Could that be part of like when if you're like a part of a sensory overload, you know, uh, or like an almost like an, an anxiety or panic attack uh, when you can't, you know, sometimes people just can't get up in the morning, like they're completely frozen. Um, could that be related to that, that, that flop um, phenomenon? Flop, I have seen, so really like um, maybe a good example of flop is uh, I did hear a story of a guy who was talking about how he used to um, hold up uh, convenience stores by gunpoint. Mm -hmm. um, and he told the story of holding a gun at one of the cash register person's face and they just passed out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They just, they dropped to the floor. That's, that's the flop response. Gotcha. They, they would think, you know, in a movie or whatever, you would call that just fainting. Uh, is fainting <laughs> synonymous, synonymous with that or is that slightly different? Uh, it's, it's a similar, it's when, um, everything just becomes overwhelming and yeah, yeah. our body just shuts down and it, it yeah. shuts down because again, we're, our chem, you know, the chemicals that numb us to pain. Um, and, and if you think about it, we're actually experiencing a blackout, so we won't remember what yeah. might be, you know, could happen or might happen. Um, also if you think about just in the animal kingdom that the animals that as a defense mechanism, they play dead. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. No. Thanks for those uh, distinctions. And uh, yeah, the uh, the the disassoci dissociation during flight, uh, I think, especially kind of resonated with me. I think with a lot of people, we learn to you know we can't leave the situation we want to, but we try to mentally check out mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, during misophonia yeah. triggers. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, please please continue this. Uh, um, you know, talking about the, these uh, these phenomena and misophonia. Yeah, so the other, I think, piece about trauma that we don't talk a lot, a lot about, and Gabor Mate is, again, really good mm -hmm. about this, is this idea that we have some, we have some very basic survival needs. One is the need to um, attach, um, and the other is for authenticity. So when we're, when we're young, we have to attach to our caregivers because they're the people who are going to keep us safe um, or take care of us. We can't take care of ourselves. We have to attach. And so we'll do whatever it takes to elicit that caretaking response. Um, the problem is, is that we also have a need for authenticity, right? And, and authenticity, when I say authenticity, it's not only a sense of who we are as, as a person, what feels right to us, what, what feels like us, but it also gives us access to trusting the messages we're picking up in our environment so intuition, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, it helped us survive um, when we were cavemen and cavewomen. Their intuition that there might be a tiger hiding around the corner helped us, yeah. you know, uh, keep aware of our environment so we could stay safe. So the problem becomes when our caretakers uh, don't validate our authenticity. And the thing is, is because attach always comes first, that survival will often sacrifice our authenticity so that we can attach to survive. Um, and that pattern, unless it's created, that will follow us into adulthood. Um, and I see I, this, this is a topic that I'm exploring with almost each and every client I see. Um, and this idea of recovery that Gabor Mate talks about, especially when it comes to addiction, you know, his definition of recovery is finding what was lost. And what he's talking about is the connection to our own authenticity and our own intuition, um, which I love. Mm, um, yep. So I think a lot of trauma treatment 
needs to um, include, you know, I work with so many clients where they've just learned to not trust themselves. They just can't trust themselves. Um, and so learning to trust themselves, learning to trust that intuition, that gut instinct, um, that's definitely, that's always part of the therapy. So, yeah, so I, I guess, uh, well, we'll get, obviously spent a lot of time at IFS and, and brain spotting, but when you said that, it, the, um, how do you distinguish, how do you help people distinguish between, like, in a trigger, the gut instinct of leaving versus, you know, that authentic gut instinct? You mean the instinct to flee? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that in, so that's a survival instinct, mm-hmm. right? Um, that kicks in um, when we think our life is in danger, whether it's real or imagined, right? Our nervous right. system right. doesn't care, <laughs> and that's right. the thing. That's the thing is that trauma is stored in trauma is not in the thinking part of our brain; it's in the the deeper right. survival instincts of our brain. So we can, and this happens with misophonia all the time, right? I'm having this body response and this urge. I need to either, I really want to punch you or I need to leave. And I know I'm being ridiculous. I, I know this is inappropriate, but yet I'm feeling, and it's really strong. this rage emotion that can come out. I just say, whoa, like where, where's this coming from? This isn't me. Um, but yet I'm, I'm having this feeling and then I have to do everything I can to control it which often brings in shame, which we'll talk about in a little Mm -hmm. bit too. Um, So, and as far as that versus gut instinct, I think the biggest thing is when we experience, when we're in a survival instinct, like fight, flight, freeze, um, our nervous system is activated. It's on, you know, we'll feel that energy in our body, right? There's an energy in our body. There's an urgency that's... um, Adrenaline is rushing into our body at that point. That's another chemical. When we're in, when we're in, and with IFS, we call it self energy, but gut instinct, in my experience, shows up when our nervous system is calm. That's, gotcha. that's when we have access to that, that gut instinct or our intuition. So that's, I hope that answers your Yeah. Question. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm just curious. Uh, it it sounds, sounds like maybe it's the, it's different between that, that, uh, survival limbic gut um, flight instinct versus a more cognitive gut instinct that's more uh, in, tied to your authentic self? Um, it's interesting. So my experience with intuition and gut is, is a felt sense in the body, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? It's like, I don't really, I you know, I could try to think logically why this might be a good idea or why that person might be dangerous or why clicking on that email is not a good idea. But if we're quiet, if our body is calm and relaxed, we will have a sense. We'll just, you know, I often hear people will say, I, I just got this sense that something wasn't right. Yeah. Um, and that is a felt sense again in the body. Um, so I mean, we can't feel that when we're, when we're in a survival reaction. Right. Yeah. I can. Yeah. That totally resonates with me because uh, that, yeah, that survival instinct takes over everything. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, maybe is this a good time maybe to, to roll into IFS, uh, that, that modality? Yeah. 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 So IFS, um, Internal Family Systems, was developed by Richard Schwartz. It's actually been around for about 40 years, although a lot of people are like, what? I never heard of that. It's been around for 40 years. It is evidence-based. There's lots of research around it. Um, and if anyone's looking to, uh, you know, watch a video, it's a really good introduction. There's a video on YouTube that I send to all my new clients it's called The Power of Self to Heal Our Parts. Um, and Richard Schwartz does a really great job of introducing the model. Um, basically, this the idea behind internal family systems is it's really normalizing this idea of being multiple. So a lot of a lot of therapies kind of a, approach therapy is like you're of one mind, and you know if you're having these strong emotional reactions, there's something wrong with your mind, <laughs> you know. Um, and uh, and Richard Schwartz, in working with clients, this was totally client um, derived. He mm-hmm. just listened to his clients and used their own language. 
um, he started to notice his clients describing this sort of internal experience of multiple voices and, and not in a sense of, um, you know, multiple personality disorder. It's, um, that's an old term. It's now dissociative identity disorder. Um, and I actually work with that population and this is not what IFS is, but we use parts language all the time in our life. So how many times have you caught yourself saying, yeah, I don't know, I'm torn. Part of me feels one way and part of me feels another way. Right. Right. When you're trying to make a decision, I, I know, I'm, I don't know, I'm torn or I'm confused. I, whenever I hear a client say I'm confused, I'm like, okay, that means there's more than two parts showing up. Let's try to tease that apart. Who's, who's confused? Why are they confused? Um, so it just, it normalizes this idea of the multiplicity of the mind is a natural state of being. It's, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And it also, what I love about it is, and I can go into the three different categories of parts, um, is that it allows us to hold two or more seemingly opposite ideas at the same time. Um, yeah. Yeah. So a lot of times in, uh, in my journey in AA, over and over again, when people were doing their inventories and their, their step work, they would come across this like, well, you know, I love my parents, but I hate my parents. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. They couldn't quite, it was like, how can I say I love them and I hate them at the same time? Um, and DBT has this idea of, um, you know, holding two seemingly opposite ideas at the same time. But if we look at it from a parts perspective, right, we all have parts of us that genuinely love our parents. Um, and then there'll be parts of us that are really frustrated with them. Um, and they're holding memories of things that were not nice or that were hurtful. Um, and then we have parts, usually they're younger parts who usually they're the attached parts um, that have to believe and love parents because that's what I'm supposed to do. Um, and I need them for survival. So, um, Those would be the exiles in kind of IFS speak. The, yeah, the so yeah. I don't know, Adil, I know you've looked into IFS. Do you want to take a shot at the three different categories? Sure, yeah, yeah. it's a good, yeah. good little quiz for me. Um, <laughs> and so the, the three, yeah, basically, the well, there's two general parts. There's the, the exiles, uh, which are kind of, um, like you said, usually um, uh, a younger. Uh, they were... Um, there, something happened to them. There was some kind of traumatic event or something uh, forced... Um, uh, them into this it's kind of a an, kind of an exiled state um and so they are um yeah they're they're usually stuck in, in the past um and interestingly enough maybe we'll talk about later they don't even necessarily know that you've matured and life has moved on and you're older um mm -hmm. but then there are uh, what are called the protectors uh and there are two types of protectors and their their job once an exile has um once, uh, once a part has become an exile, is to protect that exile. That's their whole job. And there are two types of protectors. There are the managers and the firefighters. And in my mind, basically the difference is um, managers are a little bit more proactive. They're trying to make sure that nothing um, bad happens to the exile. So that could be... Um, that could show up as maybe just you just being very people-pleasing and just kind of like bottling things up and just acting normal um and then there are uh and, and i think maybe a, a addiction maybe comes into that is just trying to uh, um trying to numb the pain by taking drugs uh but then there are also uh, the, those are the managers and the other type of protectors are firefighters which are basically literally like okay the house is burning like if something's bad is happening right now what do we do and that's usually when it's uh, when anger comes out and rage um, and maybe some other um, symptoms, but do I have that kind of generally somewhat right? That's really good. You did a good job. Yes, e exiles are parts carrying burdens, right? So right. Oh yes, bur burdens. I forgot that language. Yeah, yeah so carrying no, a burden. Yeah. Yeah. So what IFS calls burdens, I call um, trauma energy. So if you think about, um, you know, a car accident, for example, you are literally hit <laughs> with your body absorbs this energy from this sheer impact of, of the car crash. Um, and the same sort of phenomenon happens when um, our boundaries are crossed or when we are, when our own experience is being invalidated. So that sort of negative energy 
from coming from the, you know, assail, assail, I'm saying that word wrong, say perpetrator, for lack of a better word right mm-hmm, now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can be as simple as, you know, one of the most common burdens I hear in my clients is this burden of I'm stupid. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, a little kid hears maybe from the parent, oh, you did that wrong, you're stupid. Um, and, and then they go to school and they maybe get a really bad grade or they do something wrong again and the teacher says you're stupid. And so the child is left with this belief, I'm stupid. And unless that is corrected, unless there's a chance for that part to learn otherwise, they carry this belief that I am stupid. Um, and so that's one example of a burden um, so our, yes, our exiles are carrying burdens. So it can be burden of experience, um, of, of actual abuse or, or invalidation, or it can be a belief such as I'm stupid or I can't say anything or I'm not important. I don't deserve to take up space. Those are all examples of burdens that our exiles can carry. Um, and we all have them. The problem is, is when the, the more burdens our exiles have, um, the the more sort of activated we can become. So in, yeah, the managers, right? The the um, the managers are the proactive protectors and the firefighters are the uh, reactive yeah. protectors. So managers will keep us busy so we stay away from the burdens of the exiles, right? So... Mm-hmm. You who hold the burden of you're stupid, you can't come up right now because when you come up, we all cry, the body cries, and you can't do that in front of your boss because that's going to look weird. You're going to lose your job, you know, whatever that is. Um, So the managers will keep us busy, keep us distracted, kind of keep everything kind of all the all the exiles down in the basement. (laughs) You can't come up. It's not safe when you come up. So you have to stay down there. But then things happen where those burdens get triggered so strongly that the managers lose control. They can't, what what they were doing before wasn't working. And so that's when firefighters come in. And firefighter behavior are things like, you know, drug and alcohol use, um, any, really any sort of addiction. It can also be overeating, uh, self-harm, and even suicide thoughts. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Those are all firefighter behaviors. and. The, the difference between the um, firefighter and the manager is that firefighter behavior is designed to put the fire out no matter what the cost is. So if you think of a firefighter, you know, they're good, good parts, right? There's a big fire, but I'm going to put it out, but I'm also breaking down the door, the windows are yeah, yeah. blowing up, all the, all the furniture is getting soaked. So they put the fire out, but there's a lot of damage afterwards. So firefighter behavior works in the short term, but has long term consequences. Um, so yeah, um, and then there's the other piece to IFS. So we have those three categories of parts, and then we have this piece called self. So Adil, yep. I don't know if you want to take a crack at self. Oh yeah, sure. Um, so self is. Um... Uh, yeah, I think self is kind of like your true inner person uh, who, and I guess it's a little bit more vague to me, but it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah, I guess, how do I, how do I describe it? It's, it's able to, it's, it's the, uh, I think it's the voice that you're supposed to use to, to talk to your protectors. So when you're beginning therapy to kind of like try to get them to like stand, like stand back and explain to them that they don't need to um, take on their roles and that, um and that oh and then oh yes i think i think there i think the self is supposed to um tell the protectors first uh and then you're supposed to get to the excels last but tell the protectors that that um you care about them that they're not bad that their needs are um are going to be heard because um, i think that's the key to ifs it's not pathologizing it's not blaming anything it's it's going on it's um under the assumption that uh, you, you had you had unmet needs and your parts feel like they weren't listened to, and so I think the self is is kind of what's once you've unburdened your parts, um, yourself is a you're you're I guess you're more in touch with yourself, or yourself is able to kind of like uh, conduct yourself, you know, be kind of the conductor of your orchestra a little bit more uh, prominently as opposed to these kind of rogue. Um, if I take the orchestra analogy, mm-hmm. these rogue um, musicians who are your 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 protectors just kind of making a, making a fuss when they don't 
necessarily need to. Well, they're doing it in good faith, but they don't need to. And you're kind of more the the self is more that that you know, conductor. Yeah, I was kind of vague about how to how to I guess explain the self. It seemed a little bit more a little bit more spiritual, but uh, but very much ringed true. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to describe, isn't it? Um, the self is not a part. Um, and IFS would say the self is an intrinsic um, core that um, cannot be harmed. It's actually our parts that take on the burdens of our experience to protect the self. Um, and so, and the, there's qualities of self. So one of the things we ask when working um, in IFS we always, if we're going to go to an exile to unburden, right, that's part of the work we do in IFS, we always want to check for self-energy. So the qualities of self, uh, there's a bunch of C words. So calm, um, compassionate, curious, collaborative, courageous, um, creative. So these are all qualities of the self. And so what I do with clients is we'll identify uh, a problem. So for example, um, a lot of my clients, they'll have somatic symptoms. Um, my favorite actually to work with is panic attacks. Um, so when our, when our exiles are, are really burdened and we're not paying attention to them, they haven't had their needs met, they will come up in the body. Again, that body keeps the score. And the most common sort of communication I see from parts usually manifests in the form of anxiety um, and if that doesn't work, then panic attacks. So what I'll have a client do, if they come to me with panic attacks, I'll frame it as, okay, so there's a part of you trying to communicate with you through these panic attacks. Can we go to it and see what it's saying? They're like, okay, yes. So I'll have them take a minute and go in their body. Okay, where, where does this panic attack come up for you in your body? Can you find it in your body? They'll usually they'll go and say, oh yeah, it's right in the center of my chest. There's this tightness in my chest. Okay, so bring your attention to that tightness in your chest and just see, notice how you're feeling towards it as you're noticing it. And sometimes a client will say, well, I don't like it. <laughs> I don't wanna look at it, right? And I'll say, okay, so there's a part of you that doesn't wanna look at this. Um, can it tell me why? And a lot of times that part will say through the client, well, it's just, it's too messy, it's too much. And you know, if when we've tried to adjust before, we've just broken down and things will fall apart. We, we can't look at it. And so I will usually talk to that part and say, well, that's actually why we're trying to look at it because there's an exile there that needs our attention. Mm -hmm. So if you're willing to step aside, we can help this part. And sometimes they'll trust that and they'll step aside. Other times we kind of have to work with them. And then again, going back, okay, as so you're noticing this tension in your chest, how are you feeling towards it? Well, I'm a little scared of it. Okay, so there's a part of you that's scared of it. Why are they scared of it? Oh, it's just, you know, I, we don't, it's just too scary. Well, we're going to fall apart. And, and, and there's, there's a secret there. There's a lot of secrets in, <laughs> that our exiles yeah. are carrying. You know, it's just a secret. If it gets out, oh my gosh, it's, it'll, it'll, you know, it'll be awful. So if we can get past those protectors and we get to the part that is actually manifesting this panic attack, We'll often find an exile who will say, um, and actually I'm thinking of a particular client who's having a couple of panic attacks a day. We did finally get to that exile part. That part said to them, you need to be more authentic. You need to speak up more. And the client heard that from this part and was like, you know what? This part is right. I'm not speaking up for myself. I'm not standing up for, you know, my authenticity. Um, and so she started, my client started practicing um, being more authentic, uh, speaking up for what she needed for herself. Um, and when she would feel a panic attack come up, she would check back in <laughs> with that mm -hmm. part. And the part would tell her like, you know, hey, you know, you just, you just let someone roll over you. Why did you do that? You, <laughs> you need to stand up for yourself. Okay, I'll, I'll do that. And within two weeks of this client checking in with that, she would feel it come up and she would check in and address the issue. Within two weeks, she wasn't having panic attacks anymore. Wow, yeah. And and was there, getting maybe, uh, is there similar, maybe a 
story or a, or a, um, maybe your own arc um, with with misophonia and how this may have uh, you know this may be a, a path to to kind of healing that. Yeah. So um, so one of my so maybe I can like briefly go into brain spotting. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Please, please. Yeah, because brain spotting works really well with um, with parts work. Mm-hmm. Um, so brain spotting is a modality. It's similar to EMDR. If people are familiar with that, if you've never heard of it before, it's going to sound really wacky, but basically EMDR found there's a lot of research about this. It's, um, processing a trauma memory, such as someone's in a flashback, um, processing the memory and using um, what they call bilateral stimulation. There's a couple of different ways to achieve that, but EMDR does this, um, uh, pendulating eye movements and something happens in the brain that helps the brain process the trauma memory, um, make sense of it. And then once it's made sense of that activation of going into a flashback, uh, disappears or gets greatly reduced. So brain spotting works in a similar way, um, with eye position. So it's really wacky, but as brain spotting will say, I where we look affects how we feel. And I, I didn't think there was anything to it until my own therapist was like, okay, think about an issue that bothers you. Okay. All right, now look to your right. Okay. Look in the center. Okay. And look to your left. And she said, where is it harder for you to look? And I said, well, it, it's a little, I don't like, I don't want to look to my right. I want to avoid it. Okay. Can you look to your right and just stay there for a minute and see what comes up? And I did that and I felt this sudden sort of rush of um, sadness. <laughs> and I was like, what is going on here? There was no memory attached to it, but there's just this emotion. Um, and it was there, it came over me and it worked its way out and then it was gone. And there was a sense of lightness again. I was like, okay, mm. I don't understand that, but there's something here. Um, so brain spotting works in a similar way to IFS, which is we identify an issue, um, and we go to the body, where in the body are you finding that, um, you know, activation? Cause usually when you're thinking about something that's bothering you, you'll feel it in your body somewhere. Yeah. Oh, could yeah. you, could you say, uh, maybe a little bit more an example of like, um, starting with an issue? Is that a feeling? Is that a memory? Mm. Yeah, so it can be um, it can be any number of things. Sometimes it can be, um, you know, I'll have clients that come to me and they'll say, "Well, I had this interaction with someone that just really threw me off. Um, I, I didn't handle it very well. I kind of had a meltdown. You know, had to go somewhere and cry afterwards." Yeah. Okay. Well, what was coming up for you? And um, well. You know, they they said something to me that was really triggering. And depending on, you know, I'll ask, okay, well, what was that thing that they said? And they'll tell me. And I said, okay, as you're recalling this, how old are you feeling right now? And a lot of times someone will say, well, I feel like I'm six again and standing in front of my dad. You know, that's exactly how I felt when I was six and my dad would yell at me. Mm -hmm. Like, okay. And so that would be one example of a part, right? We just found an exile there. There's a six-year-old yeah. part holding this memory of being yelled at by her father. So if with brain spotting, I would say, okay, see where you can find that in your body, the activation over being yelled at and being six years old. Where is that in your body? Like, oh, I feel it right in my in my gut, right? It's right in my, in my stomach. I'm actually feeling really nauseous right now. Mm. Okay. And then we'll do a scaling question, one to 10, how strong is that? We generally want people to be around a seven or eight. And then we'll find an eye position for it where there's a, the strongest connection to it. Um, and there's a way to do that. We use pointers or we can do what's called gaze spotting. Um, and some people are natural gaze spotters. And this is actually part of my misophonia story because I'm a natural gaze spotter. But I can feel into something in my body and then immediately I can find the spot where I feel most connected to it. Um, but I've had people identify with brain spotting, identify an issue and find a gaze spot. And it's almost like a direct connection to a part. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, this part of me is saying this, this and this. And they're just staying at one eye position. Um, and there's a lot of different things you can do with brain spotting. You can actually work with two or more spots. There's a expansion spot spotting. There's body spotting. There's wave spotting. There's 
Um, there's so many things uh, that we can do with brain spotting, but the sort of miracle around it is that, um, you know, in part of my training, we learn um, the bot, the brain knows what it needs, you know, so we'll find a spot for that activation and a client will stay on that spot. They don't know why they're on that. So like, why this particular spot? We have no idea, but they'll stay on that spot and then there'll be this experience and it varies from person to person. A lot of times there can be a somatic feeling of heat or a somatic feeling of cold, um, sometimes body, like, oh, I just need to move my shoulder right now. And they're just kind of moving their shoulder around or I need to shake my hands out. I just need to shake my hands out. Sometimes there'll be a lot of emotional release, crying. Right. Um, uh, there can be memories that come up and usually there's sort of a peak of experience and then it kind of uh, rolls back down. And if you stay on the spot long enough, it will peak again. You just kind of go deeper and deeper. And the brain just makes the most amazing connections. Like, and, and I, as a therapist, just sit across from this and I just, you know, check in. If it gets too activated, we can switch to a different spot that's less activated. Hmm. So the client is always in control and we always follow what we call the tail of the comet. So wherever the client's going, we always follow. It's very client-led, which is another reason why I love brain spotting. But there is mo there's movement and momentum. It's not like you have to come, like the client doesn't have to do much going in. Like, I feel like, what if, you know, I, I, I would feel like, what if I don't find the right, you know, um, uh, thing to work on or, or issue? Um, does it just kind of naturally progress? You start with something and then you eventually go on a path and find um, whatever you need to find, I guess. Yeah. And that's kind mm. of the beauty of it. Like, you know, a client might come to me and they'll have three or four different issues that are mm. a problem. And we just, I just meet them where they're at, you know, um, sometimes the, it's easier to do maybe the quote unquote simpler or easier things first. Yeah. Um, it can build trust in the system, um, can kind of clear the way we kind of learn to trust our body. We, you know, especially with brain spotting, it's a very odd sensation until you experience it. And then when you've had some experience with it, it's like, okay, I know, I know what to expect and I can handle whatever comes up, even if it's a really strong emotion or strong somatic experience in my body and I can, yeah. I can stay with it. Um, but it's just, if, if I can share one example, it's my favorite example of how yeah. amazing brain spotting is. So, um, there's a form of brain spotting called expansion brain spotting. And it's really just expanding on, instead of processing like trauma, it's expanding on what you want more of. So if you're having a hard time, um, what you might need is to expand on a sense of peace or a sense of being held or a sense of a connection to a higher being or something bigger than you, right? So it can really, whatever concept that is for you, for some people, it's a higher power uh, or deity. Um, but I had a client who just, oh, she, her case was so heartbreaking and, um, was seeing her for a session and she just, as a therapist, it's one of those moments where you're just like, I don't even know what to do. I, <laughs> I, I was feeling a little helpless. And so, but in those instances, I have brain spotting go to, and I say, okay, you know what? You're really going through a lot right now what is it that you need to get you through this time? And despite some really horrific religious abuse, she was still a very spiritual person. And she said, I just, I, I just think I need to know that I'm going to be okay. And I said, okay, where, when have you felt that before? And she thought back, she didn't even tell me the memory. I said, can you think of a time where you felt like you were going to be okay and that you were being watched over. And she said, yeah, I can, I can remember feeling that. Okay. You find that in your body. And she did. And then we found a spot for it. So she found a spot for that feeling of being held, being okay. And she stayed on that expansion spot for about 10 minutes and she didn't say anything. Some people will talk through their brain spotting sessions. Mm. Like, Oh, I'm noticing this now. I'm noticing this now. Oh, this is shifting. She did not. Some people do that. They just, they'll stay on a spot in the process. So she stayed on for about 10 minutes. She came back. I had no idea what was going on. And I said, okay, what did you notice? And she said, I just heard every single good thing about me that I needed to hear. And I knew it was true. 
I mean, how it doesn't get much better than that. Like I could have told her all the good things about right. her. But it, 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 it I thought that's where you're going to go, but uh, yeah, right, right, right. It wouldn't mean anything coming from me. She heard that from her, from something deep inside her or bigger than her. And so it was just much more profound. Um, and that's really why I love brain spotting because you just, you never know, yeah. but it's always amazing. Thank you, Cresta. Fascinating conversation and I'm looking forward to bringing part two in the next few days. If you like this episode, don't forget to leave a quick review or just hit the five stars wherever you listen to this podcast. You can hit me up by email at hello at misophoniapodcast.com or go to the website misophoniapodcast.com. It's even easier to send a message on Instagram at misophoniapodcast. Follow there or Facebook at misophoniapodcast on Twitter where misophonia show. Support the show by visiting the Patreon at patreon.com slash misophoniapodcast. The music as always is by Moby. And until next week, wishing you peace and quiet. Thank you.